I want to get started today with something that I received in um, in an email yesterday, and uh, I want to read it to y'all. And I want to ask you before I do, how many of you feel that you're doing something here for Church on the Beach? Anybody feel like you're participating in an active way? Because I assure you, you are. Even if you feel you just come out and you leave and you don't do anything else, a guy sent me an email, and he addressed it to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He didn't address it to me. And I like what he did because he's addressing it to everybody that attends a church on the beach at any given time. And here's what he said. He said, thank you so much for the sermons uploaded on YouTube. Recently, I decided to take a closer look at the book of Genesis. And your sermons have been such a blessing. Know that there is at least one person deeply moved by how the Lord is speaking through you at the church on the beach. Keep up the awesome work. God bless. And I'll give his first name as Steve. And... Uh, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be out here preaching if there weren't people to preach to. I'd just stay at home and preach to the wall. But uh, the fact that you all come out here means that other people can participate in this as well. And I told him how much this email meant to me, and it really does. I, I, I just, you know, there's, as I said a few weeks ago, another person that watches these, and she says she watches them a couple times, and it means a lot to her. And um, uh, it just the fact that you are here allows this to happen. So uh, may the Lord receive the credit for that, and all of you feel that you are participating in a meaningful way in this church. Let me put that down. And what we'll do is we'll start out with a uh, psalm. We're going to read... Uh, I'm a little slow today because it's cold, and I don't like the cold weather, but uh, I'm going to start out with the 83rd psalm. This is a song, a psalm of Asaph. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us be, cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. And we see that happening in the world right now. We see the uh, people in Gaza throwing in uh, uh, bomb after bomb at Israel. And this is what they're trying to do, and nothing has changed. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Adam and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hegrites, Gabal, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria is also joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot, Selah. Once again, these are all the same people that are coming together against Israel as they did in the past, and they're doing it again. So we can see how pertinent the Bible is even to our current day. Verse 9, deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth, make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. As the fire burns the woods and as the flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Glorious Heavenly Father, here we are in your presence and we thank you for the opportunity to meet out here and to uh, search out your word and to uh, just fellowship together as Christians and other people that are watching on YouTube that means so much to 
all of us, knowing that they're here fellowshipping with us in a meaningful way. And Lord, today I'd like to raise a special prayer for your land and your people, Israel, who are being hemmed in by their enemies and who are being attacked without any care for the uh, people that you have loved and that you have called out to all these generations after generations and who you will return to when you come back on your white horse to reign among your people, Israel, for a thousand years. Lord, do look after them and be with them. And uh, may the enemies of your name not prevail. We love you and we praise you and we offer this service to you. In the glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we make this petition. Amen. All right, I got a few announcements here and I got things blowing around so it's a little disheveled here. But uh, I have announced this a couple weeks and I think this might be the last week. I don't know. I started getting rid of them, but I do have bromeliads at my house. If anybody wants any more, come by today and pick them up. And uh, I just, uh, I've been getting rid of them slowly. Got a few garbage cans out front already and uh, they really are beautiful, but there's a point where you can have too many of them. So out they go. Come by if you want. And um, uh, of course, I'm always looking for inviters of others. So if you know people that like the Bible preached, you know, verse by verse in a more uh, analytical uh, uh, evaluation of the Bible rather than a life application, please bring them out here and uh, let them know in advance that's what they're going to get so they don't leave here disheartened. But uh, uh, anyway, please do that. I'd also like to pray uh, as I do every week or have you pray for them while you're at home as Paul and Elaine, our missionaries from Church on the Beach to Japan. And uh, he sent me an email this week and uh, things are going well. They're winding down their time and they've got just a short time left before they actually uh, come back to the U.S. And uh, so I just ask that you'd bless them during their last few months there and all the fellowship and friendships that they've made, that it'll be a good blessing on their heart and there won't be too many tears of sadness. Um, of course, I have Church on the Beach flyers over here in case anybody wants to hand those out. And today will be the 50th sermon from the book of Genesis. So we're halfway to 100 with that, and uh, I hope you've been enjoying these. And today is particularly maybe the most anticipated sermon that I've ever done. From the time I typed it until the time I've delivered it, I've waited with anticipation for today's sermon. And um, I hope that what I present to you will bless you because it is something that is so glorious and so wonderful. Um, and it is our 50th sermon. I'm uh, not going to do a New Testament reading today because this sermon is going to be long. And I'm also not going to read another psalm today because we're just going to get too long if I do that. Um, uh, it just I, I, I couldn't cut this any shorter, and yet I cut out so much. But uh, I, just in order to keep things going, I'm not going to do the New Testament reading or the psalm. And then one final thing, uh, Darlene was here, not this Darlene, another Darlene was here a couple weeks ago, and she handed out some flyers for uh, Sunday today from 2.30 to 5 p.m. Uh, if you have time to go down to 5277 North Tamiami Trail, and uh, it's just south. It's on the same side as the Ringling Museum, but just south of there. Um, this lady has a, got a, uh, a place, a care center for women that are considering abortion, and she has invested everything into this. She's uh, apparently even mortgaged things in order to start this because she believes God has called her to it. But it hasn't been going well. She's been really tested. And so as a, a sign of support, if you're in that area of town, please just stop in and say hello to her and let her know that uh, you'll at least be praying for her. Even if, you know, if you can donate as well, that would be wonderful. But um, that's today between uh, 2.30 and 5 p.m. And I uh, let me see if there's anything else that I want to 
an ounce? I don't think so. So what I'm going to do, i got to hold my papers down today so it's going to be a little jumbled up. But uh, uh, we'll go ahead and get into our sermon. And as I do every week before we give the sermon, we'll do this day in history, which is um, 18 November is today's date. If you know Kelly Carlin over here, she called me today to remind me that today was the 18th for kind of a funny reason. Uh, It is the 18th. And um, on this day in history, in 1477, a guy named William Caxton produced Dictees or Sayings of the Philosophers. It was the first book to be printed in England. And I thought that was interesting because if you were here during the uh, Table of Nations sermons, I did three sermons on Genesis 10, and during those sermons, it talked about the sons of Japheth, who are, you know, basically the Anglo uh, uh, people, are sons of Japheth, along with other peoples around the world. And um, they're the philosophers of the world. And here it's kind of uh, uh, biblically notable to show that the first book printed in England was a, a book on philosophy and wise sayings. So you can see how God is working through the blessings of Noah on his three sons, even in the things that are done and established in particular nations. It's kind of an interesting concept. Um, in 1883, the U.S. and Canada on this day adopted a system of standard time zones. Kind of interesting. You know, we have here in Florida, we have the uh, eastern time zone, and then you've got the central time zone, mountain standard, and then you come to Pacific time zones. And uh, that was kind of done between U.S. and Canada. And so uh, it just kind of works out pretty well. And uh, if you, as you go around the rest of the world, I believe there's 24 time zones. Yeah, that's correct. So anyway, that was 1883. And then in 1903, the U.S. and Panama signed a treaty that granted the United States the right to build the Panama Canal. And if you know the story of that, the French went in there and they tried to do this and they couldn't. There was uh, malaria, there was uh, just way too many logistical nightmares, and uh, of course the United States stepped in and we said we're going to do it, and we did do it. It cost many, many lives. A lot of people uh, uh, died during the process, but we built this canal and it was ours for many years until the failed presidency of Jimmy Carter, who wrote that away and gave it back to uh, Panama, so now we have to pay for what we built, but uh, that's the way that goes. Um, 1928 on this day, the first successful sound-synchronized animated cartoon premiered in New York. It was Walt Disney's Steamboat Willie, and it uh, starred, of course, Mickey Mouse. So that was uh, 1928. And then in 1966, kind of a biblical issue, uh, U.S. Roman Catholic bishops ended the rule against eating meat on Fridays. And uh, the reason why, I don't know why they did this, but they're actually getting back to the Bible because uh, Paul writes about these things as heresies. People restricting foods, certain foods, and uh, restricting marriage and all these different things, and uh, totally unbiblical. It's unscriptural that you have you know, certain days set aside for not eating certain foods or for eating certain foods or all of these crazy things that people add to God's Word. So the closer you get back to God's Word, the better off you are going to be as far as a believer in Christ. If you add to God's word, actually add to it the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's anathema. You're not going to be saved by doing that. But people add in their little traditions, and eventually they get so far away that you really don't know that you're following the Lord of creation anymore. So uh, that was kind of interesting. In 1978, uh, before I get into this one, the thing I say week after week after week, I post it on Facebook, I say it in my daily devotionals, It's my mantra is read your Bible. Read your Bible. I say it again and again, and I say after I give a sermon or after I give an analysis of something, 
check what I have said against the Bible. Do not trust Charlie Garrett. Do not trust anybody else. And this is a classic, classic reason why you should follow the Bible and the Lord in the Bible and not a person. Is because uh, in 1978 in Jonestown, Guyana, Reverend Jim Jones, and I don't know where he got the title Reverend from. The guy was a, a moral uh, minuscule and he was a, uh, a horrible person, but they call him the Reverend Jim Jones persuaded his followers to commit suicide by drinking a death potion. We all know it was Kool-Aid mixed with cyanide. And um, uh, the people that didn't want to commit suicide, they went and they shot him to death. So 914 cult members were left dead, including 200 children. And that's because people are unwilling to follow Jesus Christ. Instead, they're willing to follow a person. And uh, we, we don't do that. Don't follow anybody on TV. Don't follow any charismatic preacher, but follow the Bible. And if he deviates from that, get up and leave and don't go back because this is what we need to hold fast to is the Lord's word. Finally, in 1993, the House and joined, uh, joined the Senate in approving legislation aimed at protecting abortion facilities, staff, and patients. And I, you don't need to answer out loud, but I'd like to ask you, uh, was that a good bill to protect the um, abortion facility staff and patients? And the answer is yes, it was a good bill. And the reason why is because they are human beings created in God's image, and we're not to go killing abortion doctors. The root of the problem is that we have abortion legal in the first place. What we are doing is we are protecting people from being murdered so that they can murder other people. And that is a sin against God. So the premise of the law may have been good, but it was built on a faulty foundation, as is most of the laws coming out of our government nowadays. They're built on a faulty foundation. And until we get back to the true foundation, which our founders established it on this book, we are going to continue to have faulty things and people are gonna be persecuted more and more. So there you go, that's my uh, spiel for today. Uh, what I'm gonna do now is read you the verses that we're going to go through. And then I'll talk about them for a moment. And after that, then we'll uh, do the sermon on these verses. This is Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 through 20. And today's sermon is entitled, The Death of the Princess. While I'm reading these, I want you to think about them. If you didn't read them before coming out here, I want you to think about these verses and what they are pointing to. And we'll see how close you get. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the, life of the, these were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them saying, if it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. 
I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which were in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within the surrounding borders, were deeded. To Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that were in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a property for a burial place. Now, I asked people on Facebook to read this in anticipation of this coming uh, sermon. And it wasn't just people here in Sarasota, but also people around the nation. And one of the uh, people that I've known many years, she read it and she posted on Facebook that she cried when she read this story about Abraham burying his wife. And uh, it is, it's a mournful story. But I can tell you that if you don't weep in your heart as to what this points to, I, I, I simply have no idea what you're thinking. This is one of the most intriguing stories, and what it points to is so overwhelming that I simply can't believe it. And I will say this, you know, I, I don't normally read commentaries except for sermons, and I do look at commentaries to help me get my uh, ideas going. And out of every commentary that I read, and also I went online and I looked for an evaluation of this passage, and I found none that point that speak about what it points to. And so I will say this, and I'll probably say it again during the sermon, that you are, this little church out here, are going to be, as far as I know, and I may be wrong, somebody may come and say, you know, I already knew this, but as far as I know, you are the only people in the world that will have heard what I'm going to tell you today. It is an honor to know what the Lord has put into this word. And I'm going to show you a couple things that have never been seen in history. I'm going to pass it around so you can see these things. And what is in this chapter is absolutely astonishing. I just, I, I, I can't say enough about it. So we're going to get into it. Um, I uh, am not going to give you any further commentary before the sermon the way I normally do. I'm just going to go right into our text verse for today. It comes from Isaiah chapter 40. It's verses 6 through 8. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all, the love, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And I was thinking about uh, people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was once a young and strong man. And the Bible says he's going to fade, he's going to wither like the grass and fade like the flower. Beautiful women that are, are just gorgeous get old and they get wrinkled and they die. And this is what happens to us. But the word of our God does stand forever. God is the creator and we are his creatures. Some of us are faithful and some of us lack faith. But no matter what, we are all just flesh and we will all wither like the grass and we will all fade like the flower. We have one chance to get things right in this life. And so we need to be attentive to the word of God now. 
And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought of three thoughts today is the death of the princess. Verse one, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose age at death and specific place of burial is recorded. She lived to the age of 127, which was 37 years after Isaac was born. This then would be the year 2146 Anno Mundi, or from creation. She is the first woman who is actually noted since Eve, who is in the line of the Messiah. From the Bible, as you've seen over these past sermons, we can infer other women who are in his line, but Sarah is explicitly mentioned as bearing the son of promise through whom God's plans would be realized. And so from Sarah, there is a direct connection linking her to Mary, the mother of Jesus, both physically and spiritually. Through her came the otherwise impossible birth of Isaac, who was a picture of Christ, as we saw last week at Mount Moriah with Abraham. And through both her and Mary came the Messiah himself. The patterns of the life of Sarah are deep and they are rich. In Hebrews chapter 11, she's noted for her life of faith. Here's what it says about her. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars in the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sandwiches by the seashore. And if you remember at the end of the uh, sermon last week, when God promised to bless Abraham, he used that exact terminology. It's swapped here. In uh, uh, the Genesis account, it said, multiplying, I will multiply you. And it talked about the descendants of uh, Abraham being as the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. Here it's reversed, which is very interesting. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul shows Sarah as a type of the church, which exists because of the grace of Jesus Christ rather than the bondage of the law. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Sarah is noted as the mother of all believers. This great woman of God is so noted throughout the pages of the Bible. Verse 2, so Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. This place, Kiriath Arba, which is known today as Hebron, is still a city in the land of Israel. We see people blowing people, other people up, people blowing up other people there in Israel, even to this day. This place, Hebron, is in a valley which is surrounded by seven mountains. The Arabs call it El Khalil, which means the friend. And it's a title which goes all the way back to Abraham, where he was noted as a friend of God. It says that Hebron is in the land of Canaan. This is in contrast to Beersheba, where they've been living, and which was noted as in the land of the Philistines. In other words, Sarah has died in the land of promise. It's a wonderful picture of the believers and where we are going to be someday in the land of promise. Verse 2 continues, And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. There are some Jewish traditions that you will hear, even in synagogues today. And I can tell you, I interviewed a Jewish man for my college studies uh, about what they believe different than what I believed. And this is what he was taught in the synagogue. It says that Abraham and Sarah never spoke again after Abraham took his son Isaac to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. They say that what Abraham did was disobedient and it was sinful. And that is why Sarah never 
is, is never mentioned as speaking to Abraham again. And she's not mentioned at all in the Bible until now at her death. It's because she disagreed with Abraham. And I can tell you something. There are numerous things that are wrong with that. And there is actually evil intent behind it. I'm being as honest as I can here because this is a very, very serious matter. First, Abraham did what God asked of him in the Bible. In fact, if you remember from that sermon, it said the God, Ha Elohim, told Abraham to do this. It was not a satanic sub subterfuge. It was actually Abraham being instructed to do this. So he did what God told him to do. And from that point on, the Bible speaks of Abraham as the epitome of both faith and obedience. Secondly, Sarah isn't mentioned again because she's no longer relevant to the story. The son of promise is born and the narrative moves on. And this is the exact same thing as Mary. Mary is mentioned one time after the resurrection along with some other people. And uh, her appearance there is just a fleeting cameo. Mary is not the source of our faith. She's not a co-redeemer. She's not a co-mediator. We do not pray to Mary. We don't offer any adoration to Mary. We give our love to the Lord only. Mary is just like Sarah here, noted because she played her role. And then both of these women were given the quiet respect of women who had done their service. And only after her death is Sarah mentioned again. And finally, the reason why there is an attempt to malign Abraham in this way is because this story from last week of Abraham with Isaac on Mount Moriah so clearly and so concisely points to the life of Jesus Christ that the only way to get around it is to diminish the magnitude of what Abraham has done. Having said that, Abraham had his tent and Sarah had her tent. Let me read you this verse again. It says, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And people try to infer that they didn't live together. No, they simply had separate tents. And we know this specifically because Genesis 24:67, which we'll get to in about three more sermons, says that after Isaac takes his new wife, Rebecca, they get married and then he takes her to Sarah's tent. It is now her tent. And this is very similar to what we do today. We are married, we usually sleep together as a husband and wife, but we have our own personal space. And this is what they did back then. I can tell you that my wife over here spends about 99.37% of her time in her own personal space because she doesn't want to be around me. I'm kidding about that. But anyway, this is what's going on. It is not them not talking together ever again. We need to make sure we got that clear. When Sarah died, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her, according to the uh, passage here. The two words in the Hebrew, mourn and weep, indicate true sadness and great sorrow. They're combined to show the magnitude of the loss to Abraham after 127 years of life together, and the majority of that was his husband and wife. Abraham was truly mournful. However, there is a secret which is found in the original text of the Hebrew Scriptures, and I'm talking about when they write this out by hand. It is something extremely, extremely rare in the Bible. And it shows of Abraham's continued faith. The word for weep right here is the word libchota. And in the middle of the letter of the middle letter of libchota is the letter kaf. It is the 11th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's like our K. And it's symbolized by an open palm. It has four possible meanings. Bend, allow, to open, or to tame. 
All of these things which occur with the open hand. In the Hebrew of this word, in this verse, the letter Kaf is written smaller than all of the other letters. And this is a writing tool known as a minuscule. The question is, why did God choose this one letter to be made smaller than the rest out of the entire text? Now, this is speculation on my part. And I always try to tell you when I'm speculating on something. But I believe that the answer is because Abraham, as he wept, he opened his hand as a gesture of offering. And when he did, he was saying basically what Job said at his own loss. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Abraham is demonstrating faith in what the Lord had taken would be returned through the seed of promise, whom he had seen in our last sermon on Mount Moriah, when he was given a ram in the place of Isaac. In other words, what Abraham is doing is he is demonstrating faith in the resurrection of the dead. This is only the third time in the entire Bible so far that a letter is made either larger or smaller than the text around it. The first was in Genesis 1.1, and in fact, it was in the first word of the Bible, and it's the first letter of the Bible. It's a very large bait, which is our B. All right, the next time that this occurs is in Genesis 2.4, in a word, I think it's pronounced Behibariam. All right, and that has in the middle of it a very small letter, hey, or H in it and it's smaller than all of the rest. Now we've come to the third time that this occurs in the Bible. And uh, before I say that though, the first two verses, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-4, were both speaking of the act of creation. This one, I believe, is speaking of the act of the resurrection. In the entire Bible, this is a very rare occurrence, in the first five books of Moses, it's only going to occur 17 times, and in all the rest of the Bible, just a few more times after that, God is giving us these clues about himself and his plan of redemption in these unusual-sized letters. Okay, verse 3, Then Abraham stood up from before his dead, and he spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, when it says that Abraham stood up before his dead, it notes the type of mourning that we see elsewhere in the Bible. In the book of Job, it says that when his friends came to mourn with him, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. It's a very common description in the Bible, and it's simply the way that they did things. And they probably still do this in many Middle Eastern countries. When we go to bury our dead, we sit in pews, and we, you know, either at a funeral home or at a church. They actually sit on the ground, and they'll often take dust, and they'll put it on their head as a sign of mourning, saying, I came from this dust, and now I'm going to return to it, or someone I love is going to return to it. So when he had poured, after he had poured out his heart and his tears to the Lord, it says he stood up and he spoke to the sons of Heth. These people, the sons of Heth, were first mentioned way back in our sermons on the table of nations in Genesis 10. It was verse 10, 15, and... Uh, they are noted in that line at that time. Eventually, from this same group of people, David's wife Bathsheba, and most people know the story of David and Bathsheba, she's going to come from the same group of people. She will be an ancestor of Jesus Christ. When Abraham spoke, he noted his lack of property, stating that he is a foreigner and a visitor in the land. And this is true because the land belonged to the Canaanites, until God determined that they would be removed 400 years later. That's recorded in Genesis 15. 
It's also something that Abraham and others were noted as being faithful for in the book of Hebrews. They acknowledged that they were pilgrims in the land and that God had something better prepared for them. And God showed us that that is a sign of faith, that we're not to get tied into the world and hold on to it too tightly, that God has a city with foundations prepared for us. And Peter writes about this exact same thing in the New Testament. He says that if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, this is not your home and you will recognize it as such. God has something better prepared for us. God is preparing a city for his people and there will be only joy and contentment then. An eternal life being filled with the spirit of God to keep us just going like a, a, a never-ending energizer bunny battery. We will live in the presence of God and he will be pleased to dwell with his people. Verse 5, And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. The term the sons of Heth and hear us does not mean that everybody stood up and spoke at once. Rather, it would, was just a single person speaking on behalf of the people. And this would be something very similar to what happened here at Church on the Beach a while ago, where one guy came in and interrupted us, and I said, leave us alone. There's one speaking for the whole. And thankfully, David was here, so he got up and he went to defend me because we didn't know if this guy's going to beat me up or what. But anyway, that's what's going on here. One guy's speaking for the whole, saying, we want to give you whatever you want. When he addresses Abraham, he does it in a very specific way. He says, hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. The term he uses is Nessi Elohim, or Prince of God. They understand Abraham's favor with the Lord, and they mention it here now. Although the word is different than the name of Sarah, it could be that what they're doing is they're tying the two of them directly together, Abraham and Sarah. Her name means princess. And by calling him Nessi Elohim, or Prince of God, the Bible is directly connecting both of them as noble people. In his address to Abraham and speaking on behalf of all of the people, he offers a resting place for Sarah freely and without condition. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is the cave of Machpelah. Verse 7, Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. Starting with this verse and going through verse 18, there is a treasure which is hidden until I found it as I was preparing for this sermon. It is a literary form of writing that's known as a chiasm. I can tell you I found about 20 of these in the Bible, some spanning many chapters of the Bible or even books of the Bible. There are hundreds, if not thousands of them there. And people, as they find these chiasms, they will publish them for other people to see. Now, I did a search online to see if this chiasm had been found in Genesis 23. Actually, I found two of them. They're both here. And... I couldn't find any record of it at all. Nobody has ever found this. So you are probably, other than Sergio, who used to do the video work here, and one guy that I did mission work yesterday, you were probably the very first people since Genesis was received by Moses on Mount Sinai to see this chiasm. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass it around for you. Just pass it through it quickly. And um, I will try to remember also to post this on the video as well. What a chiasm does, I'll be right back. Let me hand this over here. Also on that piece of paper is a copy of the word Libchota with the small letter cap from there. I wanted you to see what that looks like and why when they wrote it in their handwriting, they made it smaller. 
Anyway, the chiasm is here. And what a chiasm does is it says something in order, and then it turns around and it says exactly the same thing in the opposite order. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it to you so that you can see what's going on here. It starts with Genesis 23, and it goes from verse 10 to 18. I titled this one, Abraham Buries His Dead, A Purchase of Land. And I found this on 15 October. It starts with verse 7, the sons of Heth, and then in verse 20, it mentions the sons of Heth. In verse 9, it mentions the cave of Machpelah, which has, which he has, which is at the end of his field. And then at verse 19, it says the cave of the field of Machpelah. And then in verse 11, it says, I'm sorry, verse 10, it says, in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city. And then in verse uh, 17 or 18, it says, in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who entered at the gate of his city. And then in verse 11, it says the field and the cave that is in it. In verse 17, the field and the cave that was in it. And then in verse 11, in the presence of the sons of my people. And in verse 16, in the hearing of the sons of Heth. And then it says in verse 11, bury your dead. In verse 15, it says, bury your dead. And then in verse uh, 12 and 13, it says, Abraham spoke to Ephron. And then in verse 14, it says, Ephron answered Abraham. And then it has an anchor verse or a center verse, which is what God is trying to tell us. It says, if you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field, take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. There is a second chiasm, as I said, and it's included on that piece of paper, and we'll go over that in detail as well later. These are wonderful treasures that are hidden in God's word. Anyway, Abraham, he gets up and he bows to the people as a sign of respect, and then he makes his desire known to them. And that's verse 8. And he spoke with them saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Abraham repeats what he said earlier, and he adds to it. His statement, if it is your wish, acknowledges what they've already agreed to. He will be allowed to bury his beautiful wife, who is now returning to the dust. This verse is basically saying, because you agree, Please meet with Ephron on my behalf as I'd like to buy the cave of Machpelah. The name of this cave means double. And it's probably a cave within a cave or two caves linked side to side. And it is something that Abraham is both aware of and he wants. The Bible does not tell us why he wants it though. Maybe God told him to buy this particular cave. We don't know. But being double means that it would have enough room for others as well. Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Leah are all buried there along with Sarah and Abraham. Verse 9 continues. Let him give it to me at the full price as a property for a burial place among you. Abraham has already been offered any place for, uh, from the people to bury his wife and without cost. But this is not how the world works and Abraham knows it. To accept a gift like this would be rude and the offer was one of respect, but it shouldn't be taken as a freebie. Understanding this, he asks for this piece of property using the term malekasef, or at full money, or at full weight. Silver was the mode of money at this time, and it would have been weighed out to the required weight. They didn't use coins at this t time in history. What he is saying is, I want this, and I will pay what it's worth. This is similar to what he did when he defeated the four kings of the east, back in Genesis 14, when he took all of the money 
and all of the booty, and he returned it to the king of Sodom, even though he could have kept it. Abraham is a man of honor, and he pays his bills. Here's what it said back in chapter 14. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say that I have made Abraham rich. Abraham didn't want anything later to interfere with what he's buying now. Instead of being a leech on those around him, he wanted to be a man who paid his Ill bills and owed no one. What he wanted would be paid for free and clear. And Paul tells us in the New Testament that this is how we are to live our lives as well. I'm going to read you something from Romans 13.8. And before I do, I don't want you to get excited and think I'm picking on anybody. We all have bills, we all take out mortgages, and we finance things. But Paul asks us to do this to to not do this, if at all possible. He says, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. We're asked not to get ourselves into debt because when we do, we are in bondage to the one that's lending us the money. Unfortunately, both as individuals and especially as a society, we've rejected this principle. The Bible asks us to correct it because when we don't, we only become enslaved to someone other than our rightful master. And we see that now with this nation. We, instead of honoring God, are honoring the Chinese. And we do this in our homes. Instead of honoring God, we're honoring uh, you know, our creditors because we're working seven days a week and not taking time off to spend with our families and spend time in the presence of the Lord. Don't do that if at all possible. Verse 10, now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth. All who entered at the gate of his city saying, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. In what may seem to us as a complicated ritual, this is simply the way these things are done, and they are still done in many parts of the world. If you've been overseas and you've bartered with people, you know about this. Things go back and forth, and they actually enjoy it. If you actually offer what they ask at the beginning, they'll take your money, but they enjoy the process of bartering as much as actually making the money. So it's something that's going on here. Abraham asked for a place to bury his dead, and the leader offers a place freely. Then Abraham offers to buy a specific location, which he has actually already been freely offered. Then Ephron, the owner of this property, speaks up in the presence of all who enter at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, I have given you, past tense, the field and the cave. It is yours, and that's it. Ephron notes that his gracious offer is in the people's presence, but it's also done in the gate of the city. This is the place where legal transactions occur and everyone there is either a judge or a witness. Abraham could, right at this point, say, okay, thank you, and it would be his. But the customs and the propriety would never allow that. An offer of free land is not free. Verse 12, then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, if you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. Abraham, following this very confusing ritual, bows in gratitude that he's, to the offer that he's just been made, and now he leaves himself just as open to be cheated by Ephron as Ephron just did for him. 
in the hearing of the people, meaning in the full view of the judges and witnesses, he basically says, seeing as how you will give it to me, then you will also let me pay for it. But here's the part that we shouldn't miss. Abraham asked for the cave. Ephron offered the field and the cave, even though the field was never mentioned by Abraham. This means that if Abraham wants the cave, the field has to go with it. Ephron wants to retire from this deal. Even though he offered them both for free, he knows that Abraham is going to counteroffer and probably with payment. But Abraham only mentions the field in the counteroffer, not the cave. There is much, much more going on here than you may realize. He is buying both, but he's allowing Ephron to appear noble by selling the field and giving the cave as a bonus. What is happening here is wheeling and dealing at its very best, and yet it's done in a way that nobody will really be a loser, even if Ephron is dishonest in the price that he sets. Ephron gets rich off of a field that's not worth whatever he asks, and Abraham gets a cave as a gift when he pays too much for a field that he doesn't need. It's all very simple, right? Wait till you see what all of this symbolically represents. It really is astonishing. Verse 14, And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. The Hebrew does not say it's worth 400 shekels of silver. Ephron uses an idiom that needs to be translated this way for us to understand. And we should understand. Listen, Abe. A land of 400 shekels? Huh, what is that between good friends like you and me? Just bury your dead and forget about the money. Abraham was offered the land for free, knowing it wasn't really free. Then he offers to pay full value, whatever it is, knowing that payment is not necessary, but setting himself up for any amount by not giving an advanced amount, which he could have done. Now Ephron pulls a figure out of the sky. And when I say out of the sky, I mean it's way up by the North Star. But when he does this, when he gives this hugely outlandish price, he says, basically, gee, that field, it's worth so much. But that enormous price doesn't matter to me. Just take the field. Abraham now has one more chance to take this field for free. If he does, he's going to look like a scab for taking it without paying. If he turns it down, he's going to look like a poor wheeler dealer. And so there's only one option for Abraham. Pay the high cost and receive the cave that along went along with the expensive field. What is even more important in this confusing story is what this purchase points to. Ask yourself, why is this story in here at all? Why did God include all of these details about a land purchase? People die all the time and land is bought all the time, but they are not in the Bible. Why this one? I had to ask myself this too, and on the first day I was typing the sermon, I was frustrated. I couldn't think of what was being portrayed here. And I was praying about it, and as I was completing the sermon on the second day, I realized what God is telling us in this passage. And before we finish today, you will too. Verse 16, and Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he made in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. 400 shekels of silver go to Ephron at the gate of the city where the judges preside. Ephron has a lot of money, and Abraham has a field and a cave. Before we get to our last thought of the day, 
I'd like to remind you about what happened in chapter 20. Abraham, his wife Sarah, was taken by the king of Gerar, Abimelech, into her tent. And at that time, Abraham, Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent her back to Abraham. And when he did, in order to cover over the matter, it was called a covering for the eyes, he gave Abraham 1,000 weight of silver. God not only watched over Sarah at that time, but he also ensured that the right place would be there at her death and that Abraham would have enough money for it. And Abraham has, guess what, 600 of silver left over as a blessing from the Lord. And this is what God does. When Sarah was taken by the king, it was probably a very stressful time in their life. But God turned it around for good. Just as I say week after week, he will do for you as well. And not only that, he gave them a blessing for later. And this is exactly what he is going to do for each one of us. When something bad happens in our lives, we have to trust that God is not only going to turn it out for good, but God will actually bless us in the process. Now, I want to tell you something before I go on, that of all the people you will ever meet, and I mean this sincerely, I am the most opposed to what's known as the prosperity gospel, which says basically, you'll get rich and you'll get a lot of stuff if you give something to the church. And you turn on Christian TV in particular, you hear like this guy Rod Parsley, and he gets up there and he says, if you send me $100, God is going to unlock the blessings of heaven for you, and he's going to return to you sevenfold. I'm going to tell you what, if you send somebody like that your money, you are wasting your money. You're making him rich and you're making yourself poor. That is not how God works, and he is not a cosmic ATM. We don't give out of a heart expecting to get. We give because we love the Lord and we want his church to succeed and people to be saved. That's why we give. So I do not believe in the prosperity gospel one iota, but, but I am completely convinced that in the end, a faithful life will receive more blessings than any one of us could possibly imagine. And I will tell you something, Charlie Garrett can imagine a lot. Our third thought today, permanent ownership of the land. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field in the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were in all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. The purchase is complete and everything is restated to ensure that it is completely understood by us. Who the owner is, who the buyer is, and who the new owner is, what the price is, and that everything, every single thing, including the field, the cave, the borders of the field, and even the trees are included. Nothing has been left unattended to. And this was done in the presence of the sons of Heth and in the place of legal transaction, the gates of the city. All of this detail. Why? Are you asking yourself why God keeps repeating these things? Verse 19. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Abraham asked for this spot to bury his dead. Now he buries his beloved princess. Undisputed right and title to the land and the cave is acknowledged by this verse. Her burial is noted to confirm this. Her presence in that cave is the formal title deed to this transaction. And just so you know, this chapter that we're reading right now contains the very first biblical record of mourning for the dead, of burial, of owned land property, of purchased land property, and that silver is used for a land purchase. 
It's also laid out in a special structure, which I handed out to all of you, given to us by God to show us what he is doing and why. Why is he doing this? Chiasms aren't just a mere curiosity of literature to God. They are placed in the Bible to reveal his mind and what he is trying to tell us. In addition to the chiasm, we have the introduction of that teeny little letter cap in the middle of a particular word for a particular reason. And all of it, every bit of this, points to Christ. Stand by for the explanation of why this chapter records such minute detail and what it means to you personally. Verse 20, So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a property for a burial place. This final verse of the chapter is a shortened repetition of verses 17 and 18. And one has to ask, why? Why is this repeated? The answer is that it forms that second mini chiasm that I showed you. And what we need to note about it is that that second chiasm centers on the burial of Sarah, just as the previous one did. Let me read it to you. It says, So the field of Machpelah before Mamre, the field and the cave that were in it, were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth. So the field of Machpelah before Mamre, the field and the cave in it, were deeded by, to Abraham by the sons of Heth. And it's anchored on this verse. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah. There's no mistake about this. It is not arbitrary. And God is trying to tell us something. If we'll just open our thick skulls and think it through, what we need to do is to determine what that is. And so I want to take just a couple of minutes and look at some details that we could actually spend hours talking about. I mean that literally. I can only give you an overview of how important this story is and how it points to God's love for you. As far as I know, you are the first people in human history to hear what I'm going to tell you right now. Abraham's bride is dead, but she is the mother of the promised son. In last week's sermon, he was given a preview of substitution for atonement and the resurrection of the dead when he was on Mount Moriah. In today's chapter, Abraham becomes a picture of Christ. He has no title deed to the land, and so he needs to make a purchase. In this story, Abraham was called Nessie Elohim, or Prince of God. And Jesus is noted as God's prince in both Isaiah and in the book of Acts. He wants a place to bury his dead in anticipation of the resurrection. And in order to get it, he must take the land with the cave. And in actuality, it's the land which is being purchased. The cave is given as a part of the deal. Anybody seeing it yet? You see, back in Genesis chapter 3, the devil obtained the title deed to the earth. This is proven true in Matthew 4, where the Bible says this. Again, the devil took him, meaning Jesus, up on an exceedingly high mountain, and it showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. More to the point, though, the earth is the repository for the human soul. This is noted time and time and time and time again in the Bible. Let's go through this and see how the land deal went. Abraham wants the cave, the repository for his dead. And he asks the sons of Heth to go to Ephron to sell it. Ephron means, guess what? Of the dust. He is a picture of Adam who was created from the dust. And if you want proof of that, you can go to Genesis chapter 2. Or you can go to 1 Corinthians 15. It's about the 48th verse. And it'll say that the first man, Adam, 
was of the dust. The second man, Jesus, is of heaven. So we have this contrast between the physical and the spiritual. And thus, because he is of the dust, he represents all of us because we are all born in Adam, okay? Adam, the man of the dust, was deceived. And now he belongs to the devil. You don't believe that? Go to 1 John chapter 3. And it says that we are all under the devil and his authority. Jesus says it from his own mouth as well. Okay? So the name of Ephron's father. Why is his father even mentioned in here? The name of Ephron's father means brightness or shining. Zohar, his father then, is a picture of Satan, the ruler and title owner of the world. Paul says this about Satan, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So here we have Zohar picturing Satan, Ephron picturing Adam. The story here is a picture of our redemption. Adam gave up the title deed to the earth when he sinned. Jesus has come to buy it back. Heth means terror, the sons of Heth. It is a picture of the people of the world who live in fear of death because they cannot meet God's law. When it was given at Mount Sinai, the people trembled and asked not to hear God's voice again. They didn't want him to speak directly to them. And since the law was given, men have continued to live in terror because there is no way we can escape death. And Paul says very clearly, we cannot meet the demands of the law in Galatians chapter 3. The law condemns all to death. These sons of Heth, or sons of terror, are witnesses of what is going to transpire. Hebrews chapter 2 explains it. It says, Inasmuch as the children, us, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all subject, their lifetime subject to bondage. Through death, it says, he might destroy him who has the power of death, the devil. Sarah's death and her burial are a picture of this. The sons of Heth first offer Abraham any place he chooses, but not any place will do. Abraham specifically asks for the cave of Ephron, the son of Zohar, and offers the full price for it. Jesus asks specifically for the cave of Adam and his seed. The people of the world, we all have many choices of religion, but only one will do. Jesus has come to buy a place where his bride will lie waiting in repose because he knows the resurrection is coming. But the devil doesn't. Ephron, the son of Zohar, picturing Adam, the son of the devil, willingly offers the cave and the field in the presence of witnesses, and Abraham declines, stating that payment will be made for this field. Jesus determines just like Abraham, that the full title deed to the earth will be paid. There will be no later claims against his ownership. The devil offers the title deed to Jesus for a mere act of worship. As it said in Matthew 4, I read it a moment ago, but Jesus denied the devil. The devil then tries to stop Jesus when he indicates that what he is proposing will involve his death. When did this occur? It occurred when Peter tried to stop Jesus. Here's what it says from the book of Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. 
You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. The devil has now lost out for a second time to Jesus, just as Abraham declines the land for free for a second time. Ephron then says that the land is very expensive, 400 shekels, a very high price indeed. He notes that Abraham doesn't need to pay such a high price. You don't need the land, just bury your dead. Abraham declines again, and he offers the full price. The devil freely offers Jesus to buy, bury his wife, his redeemed, because the title deed to the world is an exceedingly high price. You don't need the title deed to the land. It's too high a price. Just bury your dead. This is the third time that Ephron freely offers the land. And when was the third time that the devil tried to stop Jesus? It's recorded in Matthew 27. We all know who Pontius Pilate is. He's sitting there judging Jesus. Here's what it says. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife said to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things in a dream today because of him. The devil, finding no other way to stop what is happening, goes back to his very first trick in the Bible, deceiving man by going through his wife. Eve was deceived, and then he got Adam to sin, and now he is trying it again through the wife of Pilate. But it doesn't work. Abraham weighs out the money in silver, 400 shekels of silver. And those 400 shekels of silver indicate a period or they represent a period of divine completion god noted as i said earlier back in genesis 15 that abraham and his descendants would be in bondage to people and he would be enslaved by those people for 400 years until their freedom from bondage which is what the exodus is a picture of this amount of 400 shekels is also symbolic of the full price being paid for our bondage and that there is also a guarantee to an end of it and a set time for redemption. Jesus accepts the offer of payment for the land and he understands that the cave, the tomb, is a part of the deal. Jesus pays this high price at Mount Calvary. The title deed is transferred and the right to the world is his and the tomb is his reward. These dealings between Ephron and Abraham were in the presence of witnesses at the gate of the city where legal transactions occurred. Jesus completed his work in the presence of witnesses, the people of Israel, who were under the law in order to fulfill the law of Moses, which is the legal transaction necessary to fulfill the contract. As Jesus himself said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This still leaves a, another detail missing. Why this particular cave, Machpelah? The name of the cave means double, and therefore it signifies double delivery from death. Jesus didn't just come to purchase the title deed to the world for Jews, but he did it for Gentiles as well. His death fulfilled this double role, and it's recorded in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, at that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off had been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself 
one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. All of this took place in a, a town called Kiriath Arba. This name is here for a reason. It doesn't just say Hebron. It gives the original name of the city. It means city of the four. And it is a picture of the world which Jesus is reclaiming. The number four in the Bible consistently designates the earth and all that it represents. The four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. The four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. The four seasons, spring, summer, winter, and autumn, etc. All of these different fours in the Bible. It's the earth he's reclaiming. And Kiriath Arba, however, is also called Hebron in this chapter, which means conjunction or joining. And it takes us right back to Ephesians chapter 2, where Christ made two out of one. Jew and Gentile are both his bride. Do you remember what I said a moment ago about the money that Abraham received from Abimelech? He got a thousand weight of silver for a covering of what had happened to Sarah. Now Sarah is being buried in land that's paid for with that money. Abimelech means father of the king. The father of King Jesus orchestrated all of this in the pages of his word to show us the marvel of what he would do through his own son 1,800 years later. Remember, Sarah means princess, and she's a picture of us. Jesus secured the right to the earth where his princess, his bride, lies, and she's waiting for the day when he will come again for her. Every story in Genesis is given in order and with specific details to show us the marvelous unfolding of God's love for the people of the world. And as a last note here in verse 17, it said the word for deeded, the title deed is the word vayacham. This word means rose or stood up. And the selection of this particular word to be translated as deeded has mystified scholars throughout all the ages. One Jewish scholar, he lived about a thousand years ago, his name was Jarki, came very close to why this word, Bayacham, was used. He said the reason for this particular phrase is that this field, with everything belonging to it, came into the hands of a greater person, out of the hands of a private man, and into the hands of a king. And so without even realizing what he had written, he clearly identified what would occur. The king of the universe brought, bought back the title deed to the earth from the common man, Adam, symbolized by Ephron, which means of the dust. The transfer was from the lesser to the greater, from Adam to Jesus, from death to life. Jesus now has both the title deed to the world and because of the resurrection, he has power over the tomb as well. And I should note to you that this was done in the presence of the sons of Heth. And you probably heard that term many, many times as we've gone through it. It says it specifically eight times. These are the people that live in terror because the demands of the law condemn us and we're in terror of death. Eight times it's used and eight is the number of new beginnings in the Bible. We, the sons of terror, are now free from the terror of death because of the high price that Jesus Christ paid on our behalf. And one more thing. Silver was used for this land purchase. In reality, Jesus' death was the result of a 
transaction in silver as well, which was made for a land purchase. If you remember the story, Judas Iscariot was paid 30 shekels of silver or 30 pieces of silver, and he threw the money back into the temple, and the people picked up the money and said, we can't use this money, it's blood money. Well, of course it's blood money. You just killed Jesus with it yourself. So what did they do? They bought a field with that money. It's called Akeldama, the field of blood. So why is this story given? It is because of this woman of God, Sarah, who is the mother of the promised seed who would destroy the works of the devil by paying a debt that he didn't owe to save the likes of all of you and me. That's why it's here. And his reward, it was a tomb, a double tomb. The first half is where he lay and he came victoriously out of it. And the second half is where we lay. And we will either lay in that tomb until our day of judgment and condemnation or we will be resurrected out of it because of the power of Jesus Christ. And if you have never been victorious over the tomb and offered the hope that Jesus Christ offers, I'd like to give it to you right now. Let me tell you how you can do this. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And it goes on to say that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And I assure you that's true. If you deny that precept, then you're just lying to yourself. We have all sinned and we deserve condemnation. But the Bible also says that, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and he gave us this gift that if we simply accept it, we will be saved. The Bible says that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's all he wants you to do is to say, I understand that I deserve death because of my sin and that I will accept what Jesus has done and I will move from this man of the dust to this man from heaven. I will move from death to life and it is eternal life and it will be glorious. If you've ever read the last couple chapters of Revelation, it is marvelous what God has prepared for his people. This is not our home. We all know that we are going to depart this someday and there's only one of two destinations we're gonna go to. So I would ask that if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you would simply, by faith, ask him to do it today. It's that simple, but it's that difficult because we don't want to put, a pro put aside our pride. Put aside your pride, please. You know, I've never done this before, but today I've got a closing verse for this ceremony. I always give you a text verse when I start, but today I'd like to give you a closing verse. It's from the book of Isaiah as well, chapter 38. It says, indeed, it was for my own peace that I had been had great bitterness but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back, thanking the Lord for what he did so that my sins can be behind my back. Thank you, Lord. All right, next week we're gonna talk about uh, Genesis 24, verses one through 11. It's only 11 verses. Please take time to read those. It's gonna take us three sermons to get through Genesis 24. It's about uh, Rebecca becoming the bride of Isaac. And next week's sermon is called To Find a Wife. Now, before we take our communion, of course, I always do a poem based on the uh, verses that we looked at. Today is no different, and it's going to be a little longer because we went through 20 verses. But here we go. This poem is called Buried But Not Forgotten. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the life, the years of Sarah's life. So Sarah died, and Abraham came to shed tears. It was in Hebron of Canaan that he mourned for his wife. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, 
I am a foreigner here. Wherever I lay, that is my bed. And now for a burial place, for you I am praying. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of the place of my view. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham from their faces, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of places. None of us will withhold from you a place. It is decreed thus. Then Abraham stood and bowed himself low to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying that if this is so, he desired a special cave for Sarah to rest in death. If you wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah. It is just right. It is at the end of his field. Go look and see. Let him give it to me at the full price as a property for a burial place among you. The one I want is suitable and nice, the one belonging to Ephron, it's true. Of the sons of Heth, Ephron was one, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham, in the presence of all of them, not just one, who entered at the gate of the city with an ox or a lamb. No, my lord, instead, please hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. It's free. I give it to you, bury your dead. This I permit. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron as a wish, not a command. If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me. I will pay what you ask, you see, and I will bury my dead there. For this I have appealed. And Ephron answered Abraham to him, saying, My lord, listen, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me, I am praying? So bury your dead. This message I deliver. And Abraham listened to Ephron and weighed out the silver, which Ephron had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. Four hundred shekels of silver he did deliver, currency of the merchants, to purchase a place for resting in death. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field in the cave, and all the trees that in the field he saw, which were within the borders for silver he gave. These were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth. Before the gate of the city, its thronging procession, Abraham purchased the place for resting in death. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which is in Hebron in the land of Canaan, because the field and the cave now were his, you see. They were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth for a property of a burial place for resting in death. But death isn't the end of Sarah, that faithful soul, because the story continues on and it is glorious indeed. There is one who came from her who would open the scroll and restore eternal life to Adam's fallen seed. Jesus is the promised one, born of a woman yet God's own son. And through his obedient life, he has purchased for himself a spotless wife. These things are pictured in the Bible's holy pages and they have been loved and cherished for ages and ages. Take each time to read this beautiful word and to take it to heart each and every day. It tells us of this wonderful Lord who prevailed over the devil. And so let us say, great and awesome God, in your light we shall trod. And so for all our days, let us give you all our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful story of our redemption which is written in between the lines of a very sad story, the loss of a man and 
his wife to a man and how he mourned over her, but he knew in the power of the resurrection and the promises that come through the Messiah. And he's waiting still, and they're all waiting still for that glorious moment when you call us home. And we do pray that it'll be soon. But until then, help us to live our lives properly and honorably. Be good stewards of what you've given us to faithfully be obedient to you, to read your word and to share it with others. Help us, O Lord, to do these things because on our own, we can't. We just want to stray away from you. But you're a great God and a loving Savior. And we we just look to you with eyes fixed on you, our heart and soul fixed on you. We love you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this beautiful story. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.